More than 20% of people in faith communities are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. But sadly, churches are often the last place a victim of abuse can find help and healing. I'm Kelly Downing, and my dream is a church where survivors like me and so many others can feel safe, be heard, and find healing. Until that happens, this is Survivor Sanctuary, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse who are navigating the road to healing and for anyone who wants to be a part of the major heart renovation the church needs so that our faith communities can truly become sanctuaries for survivors. Welcome to another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. I'm your host, Kelly, and I want to thank you, as I do every episode, for joining me here on the podcast. I'm so excited about this week's episode of Survivor Sanctuary. But before we dive into it, I always like to extend an invitation for you to join me on the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook page. We're a group on Facebook that's private, so you can talk about whatever's on your heart and not have a fear that it's public and people are going to judge you. Uh, We're a great group of fellow survivors and survivor advocates, and we'd love for you to join us there. And I have a pretty cool story this week. If you've been listening to the podcast for any time, you may have heard me say that there's some other like group out there that has to do with an animal sanctuary of some kind. And I keep getting people who are trying to find that group that are requesting to join Survivor Sanctuary. So I have questions set up. And uh, the question has been, what is the topic of conversation on Survivor Sanctuary? Well, I changed it to multiple choice this week. And if you haven't joined the group and you would like to, the answer is sexual abuse. That's the main topic of conversation here on Survivor Sanctuary. But before I had like a fill in the blank question, like you could just answer it. And so many people would say the animals or something related to animals. So typically, because I don't have time to sort through every single request and send a personal message to everybody, I always just delete them. And I figure, you know, if people are looking for something else, they'll go find it. And this is not about animals. But this past week, somebody sent a request and it was one of probably 20 some that I had received in the span of two days that I just had to delete because I knew they were trying to join the animal sanctuary group. And for some reason, I just popped on this person's profile photo, sent them a message and I said, Hey, I just want to let you know that this is a group for survivors of sexual abuse. And it's actually not about animals at all. Guys, I have never, ever answered anybody who tried to join this group to find out about animals. I just haven't. I just delete them because I don't have time. But for whatever reason, I just sent a personal message to this person and let them know. And the response that I got was, well... I would really like to be a part of your group anyway. And she began to share with me her story of abuse and, and the abuse in her family. And I was completely blown away because literally out of hundreds of these requests that I have received, this was the very first time and only time I have ever told anybody this is not a group about animals. It's actually about sexual abuse. And I think it's crazy. Don't think that's a coincidence. Like I'm not a person that goes around assigning like deep spiritual meaning to every single thing that happens, but that for sure, I'm like, that was not an accident. So we had somebody who thought it was an animal sanctuary and instead found a place where she could feel safe to tell a part of her story and get just some feedback from other survivors and just support. And that's really what it's all about. I was so 
happy to see everybody just jump on and be like, hey, you know, we're here for you. We support you. And we're so sorry for what you've been through. And I love to see that. And that's something that you're going to get on Survivor Sanctuary. We've got a group of very, very caring people who've been through abuse or who are advocates for those who have. And they are not going to disappoint with just the empathy, the caring and the understanding. And it always makes me feel great when somebody is able to share a part of their story and get some feedback and get some support. Sometimes that's all we need, right? So if you want to join the group and you haven't yet, find us on Facebook. Just search Survivor Sanctuary. You're going to get a multiple choice question that says, what's the main topic of conversation on Survivor Sanctuary? And I put a bunch of weird stuff like race cars and grocery shopping (laughs) and sexual abuse. And if you pick sexual abuse, you will be added into the group. Well, I'm so excited about today's episode because I have been wanting to talk about the culture of silence surrounding sexual abuse for a while here on the podcast. Now, we hit on it in a lot of episodes because it's just something that's so prevalent. There is a culture of silence in the church when it comes to sexual abuse, and I am so excited to be able to, in just a moment, introduce you to two amazing people, a couple who have actually stood up and said absolutely not to this culture of silence and at great personal cost broke the silence in order to protect kids within the church. And they've got a really interesting story and they have so many amazing resources for anybody who wants to do the same and break the silence and stand against what so many churches are doing, which is basically allowing abuse to continue unchecked in the church. And that is what the culture of silence does within our churches. It is a way for the people who are in power to maintain that power, keep people from talking, silence everybody, keep the story as small as possible, tamp down anybody who wants to say anything about it. And that's kind of how they keep the church's reputation and and everything they need to control under control. Unfortunately, it's also what has allowed abuse to continue to just run rampant in churches. And it's allowed ministers to, to go from church to church to church and just abuse new people in every church because there's so much silence surrounding the abuse that the people who need to know about it are not finding out until it's too late, unfortunately, in many cases. You know, speaking of a culture of silence, I just want to vent this for a second because I I feel like I was silenced a little bit on my very own Facebook page, not in the group, uh, but on my personal Facebook page. I posted a story about a Nazarene pastor in some really small town in Texas who was arrested this past week for possession of child pornography and some various charges. And I just posted it on my Facebook page because I'm seeing a lot about these elite Hollywood pedophile rings that are supposedly the biggest danger to us and a lot of conspiracy theories out there. And listen, I'm not here to argue the conspiracy theories. I'm sure there are plenty of elite people in Hollywood and other places that are abusing and that are involved in sex trafficking. I don't deny that that's happening. But what I find interesting is there are so many Christians on my newsfeed who will talk about that, but they don't talk about the sexual abuse that is rampant within the church. So I just shared this story of this pastor being arrested and 
I had a person who is actually one of my relatives just give me a really, really hard time about what I had posted, just basically saying that I was being judge and jury and and that we're all innocent until proven guilty and that I shouldn't have even shared this story because I don't have all the facts and I don't know the whole story. I'm like, well, here's what I do know. His IP address was flagged by somebody in the Department of Homeland Security because he was downloading child pornography. And then when they searched his home and his church and his computers in both places they found child pornography and were able to charge him and so to me there's really no logical explanation for you having downloaded child pornography and being caught with it on your computers except that you've actually done this thing now is there some sort of chance that somebody has been framed or or whatever I guess if you want to be skeptical of every single thing that ever happens okay but in my mind Nobody's framing a small town pastor that nobody's ever heard of in some tiny little town in Texas for possession of child pornography. I think that if they want to frame people, they've got bigger fish to fry in our government organizations. In any case, I just thought it was interesting that this person who spouts off incessantly about all these conspiracy theories and and anybody outside of the church who harms children totally be all about posting it on his page. But when I posted something about a pastor, like that was just crossing this line. And again, it's that culture of silence where you're not allowed to post a news story about a pastor being arrested for possessing child pornography because basically you're spreading misinformation or you're gossiping or you are not giving this man his God-given right, even though it's not God-given, it's an American law and it's it's an American court of law. You are innocent until proven guilty. It is not in scripture anywhere, but... We've kind of adopted that as like a reason for nobody to ever talk about sexual abuse within the church. Well, this person hasn't had their day in court and maybe they were framed and maybe somebody was lying. If you go based on logic like that, what it boils down to is you are never allowed to talk about any Christian person potentially being involved in molesting children. I mean, that's really what it is. You're never allowed to say anything. You're never allowed to share a news story. You're not allowed to have an opinion about it because you weren't physically there when it happened. It's just a part of that ridiculous culture of silence that is just in so many of our churches and so many of our denominations. And it drives me absolutely crazy. One of the many things about sexual abuse that drives me crazy. But today we're going to talk about uh, a couple, as I mentioned, who are just awesome people. It is Megan and Dom Benninger. And I actually met these folks through Facebook. Some amazing stuff happens on Facebook, right? And I have been wanting to have them on to the podcast for a while because um, they really put themselves out there, stuck their necks out to protect innocent kids and help uh, bring down a predator or at least help him to stop moving from church to church and uh, being in the pulpit. And they've actually created a pretty amazing website or actually several pretty amazing websites, which we will talk about. But without any further ado, I want to introduce you to Megan and Dom Benninger. Thank you guys so much for being on the podcast. How are you guys? Hi. Great. Thanks. How are you? I am doing good, doing good, and I'm really excited to have you guys on the podcast. This is the first time, I will say, that we've had a couple on the podcast together or just two people at a time. So, Do we win a prize or something? Yes. uh, Your million-dollar check is in the mail. All right. right. 
This um, is our first podcast, so. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm super honored that you're on this podcast <laughs> first, and I'm very excited to tell, tell you guys story and talk about some of the awesome things that you're doing in advocacy for the abused. It's amazing, and I know that our audience is going to learn a lot and be excited as well, so welcome. Well, thank you for having us, Kelly. I kind of just want to give people a little background of who you two are, Megan and Dom. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and maybe how you wandered into the world of sexual abuse advocacy? Well, we were in a cult in at when we were at Messiah College. So back in our in college 90s, years, back yeah. in the 90s, yeah, about 25 years ago now. So that was kind of our first intro to church abuse in a big, huge way. And Dom blogs about that at our website, churchtrauma.org. Yeah. And he has written that blog all about that experience, if you ever want to read it. I mean, that was back in the, the 90s, and we were in a kind of a Bible study on campus at Messiah College, and it, it became a cult. You know, it turned out that the uh, the leader was grooming the single ladies in the group and had, wow. you know, seduced one of them. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, he was married. He had an infant child. And, uh, you know, that was kind of our first experience with spiritual abuse. And, and we had no idea what that even meant, like the term or anything. Right. And right. it took, I mean, it's been 25 years. And uh, in Krista Brown's book, you know, This Little Light, she she writes about how, and I'm summarizing, right? Krista didn't authorize this message, but, <laughs> you know, how it seemed normal to her, like sort of normal in that she didn't really know how to process it until she had a child that was about the same age as when she went through her uh, abuse. Mm -hmm. And so we had a, our oldest child was a student at Messiah. And, you know, that's, that's kind of how we started processing and writing about it. I think, and I want to speak for both of us, but I mean, definitely I just stuffed it all down for 25 years. So Mm -hmm. having a, a child at Messiah and thinking, wow, like, that wasn't normal and that wasn't good. And that wasn't, that wasn't a typical college experience. So that kind of unpacked that can of worms and just and started writing about it, blogging, changed the names and everything to, you know, to protect uh, individuals that were a part of the group. Um, the only name that's not changed is mine, right? I mean, my name's not really Dom. It's, it's really top secret. I'm in the witness protection program. And- we can't talk about that. Well, I was going to ask about, because when you started talking like, oh, we were in a cult and it was this awful thing. And I was going to, like, it almost sounded like you were going to say you recognized right away how off things were. And no. um, I was going to say back in the 90s when I was in some places that could probably be considered cultish, um, I did not have any idea. So I'm, I'm glad you clarified with the, like, 25 years. Of yeah. Time. Well, and I think we did realize it was a cult when we got out because it had gotten really extreme crazy. I mean people were throwing their wedding rings in the trash and things so oh dear. we we did recognize it to an extent but we didn't really delve in and learn the terms and what had actually happened until yeah. more recently absolutely and, and, then, and reading and, and studying it right that seemed to help and that's been more of a recent thing um, yeah. studying steer- spiritual abuse and cults like Stephen Hassan's great book and you know the subtle power of spiritual abuse there's, there's so many resources out there about cults and you know there's some fantastic series on like Netflix and and Amazon Prime that are bringing to the forefront studies and research on we say cult but even mind control and how people in a spiritual setting will use whatever tactics or or methods they can oftentimes right. the bible or scripture or people's faith and using that against people 
to change their behavior. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of to our first experience. Them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was, again, 25 years mm-hmm. ago, right? And just started writing about that, which has been very, you know, therapeutic. But it's, can I add, this is all happening at the same time right. that we're going through a new <laughs> spiritual <laughs> abuse. Yeah. And uh, it was interesting because we didn't have the words and these terms even yet. I mean, mm-hmm. we still hadn't delved in yeah. at this point um, with our new... Well, we were going to a Southern Baptist church for 12 years. Now, looking back, we see that there were a lot of abusive, spiritually abusive things all along. However, towards the end, it got, before we left, got really bad. And we still couldn't name it. We couldn't put our finger on it. But I started having panic attacks in services. And I couldn't be in the building. And I had to, you know, go outside and walk. And then the last month we were there, I just hid out in the nursery. And even then I would be crying. Um, I just, I couldn't be there. And I couldn't tell anybody exactly why. We knew there was a lot of conflict between the elders and leaders at the church because the head pastor had left very suddenly, which was very out of character. So we knew something was going on, but we didn't know what. But I couldn't figure out why am I having these panic attacks? So I said, I can't do this anymore. You right. can take the kids to church on Sundays, but I have to just step out. Yeah, and it was a challenge because I was a worship leader, right? And I I wasn't at the time, but I served two t- terms on the board, what they call the deacons or the deacons board, you know, the board of directors, because it was a church as well as a day school. And so, you Which, know, I was in leadership. I just want to say a day school was just like a preschool and kindergarten. Preschool and kindergarten. Okay, yeah. yeah, thank you. Good terminology. Yeah. <laughs> And, and you were the nursery coordinator. So, I mean, we weren't just sit in the back and, and jump ship at 1201. Like we were really ingrained, like this church was so much a, a part of our family and our life. Mm-hmm. And we were very involved. And, you know, towards the end, I mean, there were, there were little pieces of conflict that, you know, there was a snowflake and then there were two snowflakes. And towards the end, it was an all out blizzard, a squall, you know to the point where you couldn't even go. And, you know, we made the decision, look, we're going to do this as a family and it's all in or it's all out. And so both of us resigned from any form of leadership and just took a sabbatical, said, look, we just, we need some time off to process what's going on here. Yeah. And then I'm trying to remember how long it was after we left. I'm going to say maybe two months after we had taken this break, I was talking to a friend of mine Nicole Saylor, who you actually had on your podcast already. (laughs) And I told her that I had something, you know, that was on my mind that I'm not sure I could ever speak out loud because, you know, it seemed so accusatory, whatever. And she was like, well, you know, we were texting at this time. She's like, well, if you ever want to talk about it, call me. (laughs) And I'm like, well, well then I'm just going to (laughs) call. And we were talking and I said, I just, you know, maybe this is from the cult back in college, but I just wonder, I just feel like this feels like sexual sin to me. It was just a hunch and I felt evil for saying it out loud because there was, I had no proof of anything like that. I had, I just felt it, you know? Right. Where there was smoke, you know, there was perhaps a fire. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then it turns out she had known some about the background of one of the pastors. And she said, maybe you guys should do background checks. So we did. (laughs) And before it takes a while for background checks to come back when you, it was the state and FBI, I guess, 
that we did? I don't remember. Um, there was a state check that just tells you, yeah, there's something or no, there's nothing. And, you know, initially when we started, there was one pastor, elder or whatever. And, you know, at the end, after 12 years, there were five of them, give mm -hmm. or take, you know, and they started dropping or leaving and whatnot. But we ran a check on like all five of them and we, we got the one hit. And even before we did, we Googled him. We Googled Don Foose yeah. and it was the first thing that came first up. First thing that came up. Was he, he had had his teacher's license revoked. From the and Department of Education. The right? quote, you know, that was the most significant to us in that was it declared him a danger to the children of the Commonwealth. Wow. You know, Healthy and that just wow. really... Yeah. You know, and you're feeling like my kids have been playing roughhousing with this man. You know, he baptized our oldest two kids. And for 12 years, he's been their pastor. So he was and, the lead pastor of the church. Well, at that time, at the end, only because the head pastor had left. Right. He had only been for most of that time. He had been more of like the associate pastor. And he was the what was it, the superintendent of the church day school? He was the superintendent wow. of the school. That was when we started just really thinking through all this, we were like, this is so wrong. Like, and we yeah. didn't know that this was happening, you know, in droves in the church overall. <laughs> no right. idea. No context. Um, <clears throat> no. Yeah. We were just like, oh my gosh, what do we do? You know, we're all alone. And thankfully between us and, and Nicole and, uh, her husband, we had researched a lot and found Jimmy Hinton and Grace and read a lot. And I called Childline. Mm -hmm. um, right we called Megan's Law. And like, Megan's, we called like everyone. We called the courthouse. Yeah, we didn't know what to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Dom called and talked to the parole officer. parole officer of that case. He was still happened to be there, even though this happened. So he was a convicted child molester so he this pastor was convicted of um, what were the charges indecent indecent assault. assault and corruption of minors yeah i think that was wow. and yeah and this had happened 20 years ago back in 99 ish so we knew the whole thing was coming of well this is all in the past but he was convicted well, and yeah but and we started to ask questions right and it was right. taboo to do that like we'll you know, yeah. and, you know, pe some people knew about it. And so, and there were stories around it and it was, oh, well, it was, a it was accusation. a false accusation or he pled no contest or pled guilty to save his family, you know, shame and just all these stories around it. But talking, it, it didn't take that long to, to call like the parole officer and to call the different organizations that were involved in this and have, you know, the actual court documents pulled and have the records checked and, and read to me. And the story that was circulating was drastically different from what reality was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the bottom kind of fell out of our whole world at that point. I mean, what do you do with that? So, you become a whistleblower yeah. <laughs> or you just shut up and, you know, and toe the line. I mean, those were really just the two options. Well, and, and I think what we did at that time was we said to Nicole, and her husband, we just said, you guys are still there. You deal with it. We're done. We're done. <laughs> That's what we said at first. That is not how it turned out at all. Yeah, I mean, the whole taboo thing was, well, this is something you need to talk about, right? You know, I talked to other deacons, like the, the, like the saying among the deacons was once a deacon, always a deacon, right? And, right. you know, it was a close-knit group. And even though I was not on the board, I still talked to board members and, you know, 
try and help out where I could, you know, if they had an issue with, I don't know, like their computers breaking or something like that, you know, I would step in and help out. So it was an open communication between past and present board members. And, you know, I immediately reached out to some of the board members and said, look, you know, how do you even bring this up? So I said, well, are you aware of any criminal charges against any of the pastors? And oh, well, yeah, I heard there were, you know, rumors, but that was it. And, you know, that kind of opened it up. Well, did you ever check up on rumors? Like no one ever had, no one ever did a background check. The church leadership was unaware then of like the seriousness of the charges when they put them in charge of a, a school. That's a tricky question. I'm not sure exact dates, but they knew for a decent, like at least eight years, I think it was. I would say most of the the pastors knew about what he, you know, Foose had had said, and and it was his story, right? They didn't know, as an example, afterwards, you know, I called the pastor that had left, you know, Conrad, and he's mentioned in the USA Today story. Talk to him. Well, did you know any of this? Well, he heard the story that, that was provided by Foose, and it was, you know, false accusations and blah, blah, blah. And well, I asked him, you know, did you know that he went to jail? Well, no, I didn't know that. Did you know he pled, you know, guilty? Well, no, I didn't. No one had done anything. They had just accepted the narrative, you know, that was provided. And I think the only person that we know for sure knew the whole truth was the president of the board who had been a policeman. And even that, we don't really know for sure what he did and didn't know. I mean, there were, while I was even on the board, so this happened and the bottom fell out and we kind of went back in time, right? The past 12 years, like, did anything, oh my gosh, like my children were there. Right. And two of my kids went to school there. And was there anything? And when I was on the board, there was there was an incident and the director, whatever, the chief of the board, you know, the the head deacon, you know, said, well, I'll handle the investigation. I'll take care of it. Don't worry, I've got this. And, you know, the result of that was, oh, well, it was, you know, it was just a big misunderstanding and it was swept under. The congregation wasn't notified. And, you know, to my shame, I never dug deeper on that and I never connected the dots of, look, here was a fairly credible allegation mm-hmm. and connecting the dots here, there was a conviction that I didn't know about. I mean, there, what else is under the surface yeah. that we just don't know about? And the policeman said that he believed the story, the, that it was just a false accusation. I think most people just think the he should have known being better. The head of the board. The head of the board. Right. Most people, I think, think he sh- should have been the one that was like, yeah, you don't just believe things like this. You check into yeah, it. Right. You know? <laughs> right, right. So maybe that's more what I'm thinking when I say he knew. I mean, he looked into the records. We know yeah, that. I mean, as a as a police officer, the records would have been available. But to be fair, like well, the Department of Education thing was there for t- for 12 years. And I, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't dig. No one no one did. Dug right. no and, one. and some people knew a, that there was something and and just let it go with that. And you know, there was an incident and as I said, you know, it got brushed under the the covers. Like it was never brought up to the congregation at all and it was just kind of let go and and there was that 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 I knew of being on the board. You know, what else was there that we weren't aware of? You know, so we we continued asking questions. We continued, you know, making phone calls, calling Megan's law. Like is this even legal? And, you know, I have family member that, that runs a daycare, which is kind of day schoolish, right? I mean, there's kids right. in school mm-hmm. and stuff. So, it's the same you know, state. Yeah, it's in Pennsylvania. You know, call her and say, look, is this even legal? Like, how can this happen? And just doing something that the church should have done 12 years ago before this person was brought on, one as an elder or a pastor, and two as 
director or principal of a school with children. H how does this happen was the overarching question we were dealing with. So right. the response was less than favorable. <laughs> it, it switched into kind of the damage control mode from the existing pastors. And we became the bad people. Yeah. That were spreading gossip. Oh, and gossip and, you know, libelous and, you know, you're slandering men of God. And I mean, it, it, it's so over-documented in the, the media what whistleblowers go through, not just in churches, but anywhere. You know, it always right. is flipped where the truth teller becomes, you know, the bad guy. And, you know, exactly. the person that did these things becomes, you know, the victim. And, you know, in our case, it was absolutely no different. But we weren't quiet about it. And we continued to ask questions. We wound up in closed door meetings with, you know, all of the existing pastors and uh, the sailors were there as well. I mean, he was on the board at the time and it, it was, I don't know, the, the responses were just disturbing. I mean, there were theological explanations yeah. of why, you know, it wasn't a big deal. And there were explanations. Because God on, forgives everything. He's a new man. Yeah. And, oh, this is just because of Sandusky. Sandusky. That darn Sandusky, if that hadn't happened, this wouldn't be a big wow. deal. But, and the you know. pesky Gen Xers. Oh, yeah, that was <laughs> that the was other awesome. thing. It was a generational thing. That was another one. It was a you generational thing. Yeah, you young like people need to, know everything. need to know everybody's business thanks to social media. And my, in our day, that you didn't ask age. each other's business, you know. <laughs> Like, it's personal business that someone is a child molester and is now working like, with other a children. convicted child molester. Yeah. So it's not uh, even yeah. like, yeah. and you, what do you, what do you do with that? Yeah, right. that was well, a what hard did you do meeting. with that? Well, one was we're like, you know what, this is not a safe place for us and our family, right? Mm, I mean, that's right. the first and foremost thing. But the doors are still open, and there are children in there every day with him. Yeah. You know, and his office was what six feet from the, the bathroom and well and after we told the all the elders what you know what we knew and whatever and they took another seven weeks to even tell the deacons wow so most of the deacons did not know yeah and then it took they took even longer to tell the school and then they didn't even fire don Foos. they let him resign and he at first without all he said was oh you know i'm getting old i'm tired i'm moving on to different things but then because the gossip got so bad he had to fess up and make, make a confession a in front confession. of the, the church to which he confessed to about a tenth of what actually happened i mean the details it, were again you know the narrative that we had before of well this was a one-time thing and this was this and that but the arrest report and the court documents were drastically different from the narrative that was being mm -hmm. presented not just from from that pastor but from the entire leadership team at the church right it was still being misrepresented to the congregation and you know a letter went out right and it, it read like a lawyer docket i mean it was, yeah, it was so watered down you had no idea what they were even talking about yeah, the police, the police ordered that the school send out letters to every family that had ever had a child in the school. And also they send them to every family in the church. Mm -hmm. And it literally said 
There was an incident. There is a pastor at Oakwood who had an incident with a child that was resolved before his coming. Oh, yeah, involving. I thought it was involving a minor. Yeah, Yeah. before coming to the church. That was resolved. The whole thing was resolved. I'm like, it was resolved with a prison sentence. (laughs) Oh my goodness! I mean, come on. They didn't name. They didn't give his name. They didn't say which pastor. I mean, these parents didn't know what they were should they question their kids they made it sound like that it happened 20 like years it was ago a false and that accusation was or something it. And it wasn't even a big deal there was no it, nothing came of it is what it sounded right. like right really terrible i was just gonna say that typically that's what churches do because they talk to somebody who is either from their insurance company or their attorney mm-hmm. or their insurance company's attorney and they are told this is what you say and what you don't say. And if they're not yeah. told by an insurance company, they're told by another member of their denomination, somebody in leadership, you know, a district director or however it works in the Southern Baptist Convention, like how they should deal with a situation. And and typically, I would say like every story I've ever heard it is always something that is self-protective, which means share as little information as possible because we want this contained and we want it stamped out. Yes. And here's an interesting crossover. That letter was written by a lawyer, was written by the same lawyer that covered up in the Chantry, Tom Chantry. Tom Chantry. Whatever, Chantry, whatever that abuse case was, it was a bigger abuse case than, I mean, you know, bigger church and a big scandal. So that to say the lawyer that drafted this letter was involved in what I'll say covering up or minimizing, kind of paving over other abuse. Mm -hmm. There's a blogger that that wrote all about the Chantry case and named the lawyer and everything. Anyway, it was interesting because these guys are kind of webs of them everywhere and they are just... Our, you know, it it went all the way to the top, you know, of the Southern Baptist Convention in that our state convention guy, Larry Tyson, he knew, he knew Don Foose's background before he ever even was hired. He admitted to it. And it's in that USA Today article. But he didn't look into it either. He said he had dinner with him, you know, and just listened and figured he's forgiven and it's over. And the reporter asked him, did you ask any questions? And he said something to the effect of, I don't want to fill my mind with unnecessary things. I'm like, okay, children are being possibly raped or abused, but at least your mind will be pure. Right. That really ticked me off. Yeah. Anyway, Larry, and I think it mentions this in in our article too, but he was on a committee that wrote some directives for the whole Southern Baptist Convention on abuse, like on how we should handle ch- uh, child abuse in the Southern Baptist Church. He was wow. on the committee that wrote, yeah. wrote I mean, about that's, that. There's, there's media articles about that, you know, the committee that he, he served under, and he was the director of the Keystone Baptist Association in Pennsylvania. You know, he allegedly knew about Foose's background. Um, and then when everything blew up, he became an interim pastor at Oakwood, you know, which, which I didn't see a whole lot of change so at Oakwood, you know, after everything kind of blew up and we just wouldn't be silent about it, you know, the church went from what, roughly a hundred people down to maybe a dozen Yeah, I don't know. being, that you know, yeah. optimistic there. I'm, I'm rounding, but you know, they brought in every, all the pastors resigned, mm-hmm. all of them, all f- five of them that became four, which became three. And eventually they were all gone. 
uh, resigned from being pastors. The whole board resigned. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they started rebuilding. So they brought in, you know, Larry was an interim pastor and then they brought in uh, another pastor. From Ignite US. Ignite. Yeah, right, right. I do not recommend them (laughs) at all. It did not, it it buried at six feet deeper. Yeah. And, you know, to their credit, they, the interim pastor took time to meet with us and, and, you know, we walked away very hopeful from it, which was, you know, you guys did did all the right things, said all the right things. And that's, that's important, right? Said the right things. But then later on, when we found that Fusa just moved on to another church and, you know, he was preaching at Carlisle Baptist, which is 20 minutes away from 20 minutes away. And Larry Tyson knew that he was there. Right. I I believe he did. The state guy knew. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the the pastor there, you know, talked to Don and and got the, you know, talked to Fusa and, you know, was told the same thing of, oh, well, you know, very minimized. And they put him in the pulpit to our knowledge, they didn't notify the congregation or parents there at all. Mm-mm. In fact, I don't even think no. most of the leadership the, knew about no, it. No, the, the children's director had no idea. Yeah. So wow. history repeated itself, right? And, and right. we saw this in the cult and, and this was a pattern. So the cult leader, you know, everything blew up. Uh, he had seduced a congregant um, and he just moved on, right? He's, you know, he's currently in ministry for a major international mm-hmm ministry today like just moved on and there's no repercussions no one really knows and you know in this case you know Foose just moved to Carlisle Baptist started attending there and got right into the pulpit and again there's no way to track them there's no way to communicate and you know the interim pastor set out protocols from this is the ignite guy uh, we'll respond to requests about his background but we won't proactively tell anyone yeah, that's beyond the scope of their responsibility, responsibility. Yeah. you know. And so once again, there was inaction on the part of the church. And we had to, again, make a decision. Do we whistleblow, you know, do we go whistleblower again? Or do we just shut up and, you know, fade off into the sunset? But children could potentially be at risk and mm-hmm. children and, and adults, right? Right. Because there was a, a day school worker that you know there was an incident with i mean people are affected by this behavior and and we can't sleep with ourselves at night knowing that there's this risk and at least that people know about the risk and then they can make the decision right i mean parents can't make a decision of what is best for their own children if they don't know the risk Mm -hmm. and if I, i warn someone about a risk and they think about it they study it and they say you know what I see a risk. I'm going to accept the risk. I, I think, you know, God's forgiven them and whatever. At least they know about the risk and can make a decision. Right. But when they're not even given the opportunity, you know, they're not even told about the risk. You know, what do you do with that? So. And and Baptists are very big on authority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the one thing that really, you know, got us on that, that I argued to these, another association that we got involved with and their lawyer, and it was it's been a mess. But anyway, is that you don't usurp the authority of the parents. Like mm-hmm. we are the ones responsible for our children, not the pastor. We are directly responsible for the safety of our children. And we are the one that needs the information. Right. It can't just be the pastor. Yeah. Exactly. And how can they make that decision again if they don't know? So this one was a two-pronged approach, right? 
mm-hmm. of, you know, I sent a letter to the pastor at, at Carlisle Baptist Church, you know, mm-hmm. outlining, look, this is what happened at Oakwood. You, you just need to be aware of this. And, you know, you took a more I did, I did the approach. Facebook post because I'm like, oh, he will not do this again. Like the word needs to get out. This is really bad. Yeah. And it wasn't just me that discovered that. That was actually someone else from Oakwood who came across his sermon on the So you discovered Carla. essentially that he had preached in this new church. Yeah. It was a yeah, it was someone else from Oakwood who I won't name, but um that discovered the sermon online and told me and Nicole and I think a few other people about it and we were all just like How does this happen? How does this happen? Like what is happening? And it was the same pattern of they just move yeah. on and start over and you know no one's checking up on them no one is keeping them accountable if you will right and so yeah so you want to I mean I sent a letter and I copied the whole board and I said look you know if if Oakwood won't proactively do something then what I'll do is they said they'll respond to any request for information I sent a letter to the pastor it just gave the facts it just gave the documentation he has these convictions, you know, this is what happened at Oakwood. Yeah. You were very straightforward and not at all out of line. Yeah. And it closed with, you know, attached to this email are the Oakwood board members and, you know, they would be more than willing to discuss this with you, like handing it off, right? If they don't right. want to proactively go there and talk to them, then you know what, I'll bring Carlisle to them. And so that was, you know, how we wound up with the letter from the board of what firm rebuke I guess guess it was called (laughs) yeah and I'll interject here that I I saw the post you put on Facebook with the letter that you received after you warned this church (laughs) and I my blood I feel like my blood is still boiling and it was like five (laughs) days ago that you posted it so yeah yeah talk about that so (laughs) basically telling us off saying yeah I mean, how dare you do that on Facebook? That's not the place to do this. Yeah. And and I had included like scriptures like, you know, in in the the Gospels, you know, Paul rebukes Peter publicly. And and there are cases where if someone does something horrendous in public, you know, it's dealt with publicly. And I included that. Right. And just said there's a, a case or precedent for publicly bringing this crap up, you know, because, again, so much of everything we've dealt with has been secrecy. And those in power want to control the narrative and they want to control the flow of information. Mm-hmm. And that typically results in our case at Oakwood of sermons about gossip. And so this letter, it was pretty awful, in my opinion. Yeah. And I know that as to what you're saying about you had given them, okay, I believe it's important to bring this up publicly because of, you know, what scripture says. And basically in their letter, they said, well, you're not an apostle and you don't have the authority to warn people. Basically almost word for word said that. Um, Which is garbage. (laughs) I'm like, what? (laughs) Yeah. Like, I don't even know. Oh, there was so much in there that I just, I couldn't even believe. The portions of the letter where he's just giving you all like spiritual reasons why you're wrong. And it's, it's just so abusive. Like the way he's twisting scripture to be like, essentially, Mm -hmm. we're going to let a child molester 
be in churches preaching and around other kids, and we're not going to warn anybody. And according to scripture, your job is to just let it happen and shut up. I mean, that's basically it. That is exactly (laughs) what it said. Well said, Kelly. That was the perfect summary. And it actually, I should put in here, I did, I wrote my response that day. However, I did not send it for quite a while because we had decided at that point, we were almost like, it's just not even worth it interacting with these people. They're so it's hopeless, you know? Right. And, and that was the way in the cult is when you're in the situation, it's like, it, it's like this black hole and it warps everything around you that you can't even see right and wrong. What's obviously right and wrong in front of you. Mm-hmm. Well, but I had written it and, but mm-hmm. we had decided, okay, we're just not responding to these people for a while, but then I couldn't, I couldn't not. So yeah. <laughs> I ended up sending it. And yeah. and I wrote um, one and still haven't sent it. Yeah, he wrote one and didn't send it. <laughs> His was really good too, because he came at what they said about him. Like, you didn't follow the protocol we set out. And he's like, I absolutely did. I, I did exactly what you said to do. Yeah. You know? so. And just the bigger root issue of, like, there was so much misogyny in it, right? Mm-hmm. So Megan publicly said this. And in their letter, they said, well, Dom, you said this yeah, as if Megan wow. didn't exist yeah. other than as an extension of me. Right. Mm-hmm, and right. that really ticked me off. That, yeah. That made me angry that's too. <laughs> yeah. Good. <laughs> it should. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how do you, how do you get through to someone that's in a, a state where they don't even see right and wrong? They can't even see, you know, they're blaming me for something that my wife said and right. they're coming at me you know, discrediting use of scripture saying, well, no, the scripture means this. And you, you know, in essence, sit down and shut up. Right. I mean, what do you do with that? You guys asked the question a little bit ago, like, how does this happen? And I Mm -hmm. think that just in talking, you answer it like it happens because it's a whole entire culture that is built around keeping people silent so that you can maintain a control over them because you Mm -hmm. cannot have control if people are free to think and talk as they please. You just can't. So you're not going to convince a congregation full of people that it's okay to allow a child molester to run their school, you know, if people are allowed to think freely and to talk freely. So Mm -hmm. instead, it's your gossips and you're not submitting to authority or you're not submitting to your husband or you're this or that. Mm -hmm. All of it boils down to, yeah, all of it boils down to this. Exactly. It's just a culture of silence. And you guys were the problem because you were like, all right, we're not going to be silent about this because it's crazy to be silent about something that's that serious. Absolutely. So he wrote a letter, you wrote a letter back. Has anything happened as a result of that? Aside from, I know you said that people have deleted you or off of Facebook (laughs) posts or things like that. Locked on LinkedIn. Oh yeah. Yeah. So nothing, I think, uh, Gary, who was the guy from Ignite US, uh, Ignite US, that was kind of like we asked them to bring Grace in, Boz Chavidian's organization. Yeah. This yes. was originally, right? yeah, but they didn't like that because they were too harsh, you know. So they, this Ignite US was their, I guess, version of that, but it was still too Baptist and too internal. Yeah, and. I mean- it comes down to like the external, right? Doing an external investigation and letting them dig up the truth yeah, versus right. bringing in your people 
mm-hmm. right? And and Grace, and that's how we got connected with Jimmy and with Boz. And, you know, that would have been an external group that I think, you know, would have... Things would have gone very differently. Different aspect. And, and Ignite, as far as I understand, is, is a very pro-Baptist leaning group. So it was, in essence, kind of an internal investigation. Yeah, and, and he kept saying, my purpose is only to bring peace. I'm going to do restoration uh, restoration yeah. like it's not going to be a very in-depth investigation but there w- we were told in the beginning there would be a written report we were also told that we would be but publicly exonerated exonerated that was the word that never happened and no, that never happened either. almost anything he said in the beginning didn't happen but gary was was the interim pastor gary scott and he did email me back just to say it, it there was some other background stuff behind that letter that would be difficult to get into, but someone else in the con who was still there at Oakwood had brought up, they knew about this letter. I had, I had let them read it and they were bringing up to him, like, what is this? Like, this is unacceptable. And so he, he was emailing me back about that. I just need you to know that they already, I've already given them all our emails back and forth since I came. And I'm like, good, because I'm very confident in everything I have said throughout this, I hope you are, <laughs> because he was telling me he's he's transparent when they want to be. When it's right. in his favor, he's giving them every word I've ever written, every email that we've ever written to them back and forth. Then he was transparent, but in no other part of it was there that much transparency. And that's what was wow. so desperately needed at Oakwood mm-hmm. was just being transparent. There was a, a Monday night town hall. That was, you know, the whole congregation showed up and it was open, you know, it was to talk out what's going on. And, you know, there was no transparency. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was all along, you know, the story of Oakwood was a lack of transparency in just about everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was controlling the narrative. It was, you know, staying in a position of power, like all questions funnel through leadership and then they will address what they want to address in a way that they want to address it Mm -hmm. so that they can control the congregation. Oh, even to the extent that with a lot of those, you had to write your questions out ahead of time. Right. So there could be no like last minute questions, you know, (laughs) and you had to put them in a box and, you know, submit it by such and such a date. And then we will answer the ones we want to, you know, it really was that, that controlled. Wow. And another thing I just want to be sure to have time to talk about is what happened with Carlisle Baptist, mm-hmm. uh, because there was more of that after all this. So there wasn't much other communication from Oakwood after that, although the new pastor there has communicated with us some, and he seems to be, he seems to be on the right side of things, the new full-time pastor. However, with um, Carlisle. Carlisle, what ended up happening is we couldn't let it go, like knowing he was there. And really, right. when Dom had written that letter, the Carlisle pastor wrote back and just said, wow, I can see you're very passionate about this. <laughs> you know, why don't we meet? Why don't we meet and talk? And we were like, I don't think there there's a need for that. We just need you to have this information so you can tell your congregation. You know, end of story. We thought that was the end. But time went on and we're all like, oh, my goodness, like, he's still there. Like what we have to do something. And so, um, Nicole Saylor, who you had had on before actually started, I forget how this all worked out exactly, but she ended up getting in touch with JD Greer 
actually, who passed her on to Todd Unsicker, who discussed some of this with her, but then passed her down to another state association. So in Pennsylvania, we apparently have two. So we had talked about the one with Larry Tyson, the Keystone Baptist. There's another one that covers Pennsylvania and New Jersey that's called the Baptist Resource Network. So Todd Unsicker of the Southern, so J.D. Greer, I do want to say J.D. Greer is the president of Southern Baptist, right? Um, the whole national Southern Baptist convention. And then Todd Unsinker is like right under him. And so, you know, she really went right to the top. They passed her down to this Baptist Resource Network. To and it's more state level. State level to the director of that. And she talked to him about this. And is there anything that they could do or help with? Um, and then... You know, he was kind of positive, like, oh, yes, I'll, I'll talk to him. That definitely needs to be dealt with. This isn't right. And then I got involved because I had all the documentation for everything. And I just said to Nicole, oh, well, do you want me to just send the documentation? Because she was telling me how, you know, she was talking to him. I, oh, sure. So I sent that. So then he got back to me and was saying, oh, yes, you know, we really want to uh, we're going to talk to him and ask him to tell his congregation and make sure, you know, he knows all of this. And we're blacklisting. He called it blacklisting Don Foos, but really, in essence, they just took him off of their preacher. Uh, their or, bench. What was it? Yeah, they have like a list of preachers <laughs> to fill in if somebody's right. sick or something, you know, and they substitute have teacher a substitute list. There you go. They just took him off the list was basically wow. what they did, which isn't that was much. pretty harsh. Yeah, it's yeah, helpful. And, yeah, right. And so, you know, he said, oh, we're going to talk to him and whatever. And so I just had a lot more questions then as I was thinking about it. I'm like, well, can you only tell the pastor? Like in, a, in Baptist churches, the way it's set up is the congregation is the final authority. Like they vote on major issues. Right. And the pastor is supposed to be the least powerful. So I was asking questions like, well, then shouldn't you be telling the congregation because they're the one that needs to make the decision here and vote on it? Uh, and I, I just asked a bunch, at which point I got pointed to the lawyer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you went too far, Megan. Went too far. And so dun, then dun, dun. I'm like, all right, bring it. I'll talk to the lawyer. <laughs> anyway, so I did. And he couldn't really answer a lot of the questions that I had. Very nice guy. Very nice guy. And they're yeah. all nice. And yeah, they, they were all nice. They, I really felt like the Baptist Resource Network wanted to do the right thing. Of all, They really seemed genuinely like they wanted to do the right thing. But the system is so messed up. Yeah. Right. Um, we kept hearing about like church autonomy and we'll, you know. And I'm like, and, well, how is, yeah, how is telling the church that there's a child molester there Learning their autonomy. autonomy. It doesn't. Anyway. Yeah. So I I was talking to this lawyer about all this. I talked to him for like over an hour. He didn't really answer any of my questions, but he did go ahead and he talked also to the pastor at Carlisle Baptist. And I said to him, will you is, oh, he said he is planning to talk to his congregation and tell them. I said, okay, will he, is he supposed to verify that to you? And he said, yes. And I said, will you, can you let me know? Can you do that? Is that legal for you to let me know if he, oh yes, we can let you know. So I stayed on it. I let a couple days go. And then I'm like every day, did you hear anything? Did you hear anything? Did you hear anything? Can you hear me now? Yeah. Did, did, did he tell them? Did he tell them? And he kept saying, I don't know. Well, I know, you know, he told his 
council 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 yeah i think was the word he used but whatever that is because we didn't have a council in our church so i don't know but he told somebody (laughs) some people and i'm like so you don't know if he told the congregation and the parents no and so then i went to the this was the lawyer so i went back to the director of the baptist resource network and asked him do you know no i don't know and so finally i'm like this is so ridiculous so i emailed the pastor at carlisle baptist church and tagged the whole BRN, everyone, everyone up to J.D. Greer. I'm like, this is so insane. <laughs> and I said, Pastor Ed, <laughs> no one is able to tell me if you have informed your congregation about Don Foose's background. So it will be up to you to let me know if you have done this or not. And I said, you have until Wednesday. I think it was five days later. <laughs> to confirm to me that you have done this. Otherwise, I'm going to take every measure I can to make sure that I inform them myself because children are at risk. And complete crickets chirping from everyone. Not a word. Four days. Four days, three, you know, nine-tenths of a day. (laughs) And finally, (laughs) at the 11th hour, he emailed me and said he did it. And I, I had given him very specific. I said, because I knew all the stuff that Oakwood pulled with not naming people. And I said, yeah. so I said, I want to know that you informed your congregation of Don Foose by name and by the names of his convictions. I said, that needs to be because that's what parents need to know. Because if you right. pull this, some incident that was resolved, by somebody somewhere jaywalked i know (laughs) but he's been forgiven so yeah right he's right with god now i mean so he did he did very and i asked him i said can you verify that you said his name to them and his convictions and he said yes i did and that there's a lot of background i didn't get into but there was a woman i was in communication with at the church and she did verify that he had told her like that evening like right before the deadline um and she had three children and she had seen my facebook post and thanked us profusely uh she left the church i mean she was furious yeah as Um, as she should be yeah so that was yeah that kind of is how that played out and so i've learned to when you email people email groups of people at a time because if you email one person they can just shut it down you know yeah ignore it bury it till you get brave enough to email the next person that's a great strategy just copy everyone copy everyone (laughs) everyone that means anything and the really that tactic of just giving him the deadline and saying if you don't do it i will that was boz that was advice from boz to us at oakwood and we were too scared to do it yeah um he had emailed Nicole actually had Nicole had emailed him and asking and he had said you give the church two weeks to inform the congregation and if they don't then you tell them that you are going to and so that was his advice then and we didn't do it and so this time like we're doing it yeah because again Oakwood really Mark and Nicole reached out to Grace in the early days of this thing blowing up at Oakwood, right? And and Boz was involved and and you know, he recommended working with Jimmy, Jimmy Hinton, who, who's, you know, in, he's in Pennsylvania, so it was kind right. of a local thing and it, it looked great. Like 
at the onset, I remember when the email came through from Boz and we were, you know, as a family at Hershey Park and, you know, Nicole reached out and said, oh, you know, we were just like, oh my gosh, like, this is so validating. Like someone actually is taking this seriously because up to this point, it was, it was like being in the twilight zone. Like no one seemed to care and children could potentially be at risk. And, you know, something happens to a child, it, it takes a lot of times it takes years for the child to even process what what happened. I mean, take Narrowgate for us. Like we went through a cult in 1996. And we were adults we and were, it took that long right. to process. I don't know if I would say I was an adult, but <laughs> I was, you know, over 18. Yeah. I was, you know, a dumb kid. I mean, I was, right? You were oh, brilliant yeah. and beautiful and wonderful. <laughs> but, you know, sure. I, you know, I wasn't. I mean, just being real. But 25 years it took to process what happened. And that seems to be very typical for a child right. who, who is, you know, is abused. Well, to and this is it. my concern still to this day is even though we've had a national story, those parents have still not been informed no. that that their oh. children were exposed to a child molester. And that was the most vulnerable age because the children of the age three, four and five don't have any words to explain. Yeah. Unless their parents have taught them very well uh, that right. developmentally, they do not even know that that's wrong. They don't know, they don't know how what to, process to call it. it. They don't even know they're supposed to tell someone. Right. And we have this published uh, on our blog also at churchtrauma.org was some uh, documentation to go along with the USA Today article. Yeah. And there was a five page letter from the pastor yeah. at Oakwood of concerns that he had 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 over the 12 years and everyone who complained got fired like everyone at the school that complained about Don Foose's behavior got fired yeah and again I was on you know the the board at different periods of time during this period and and I was never made aware Mm -mm. that there were complaints against his interactions with children like all of that stuff seems to have been covered up and kept a secret and you knew the one incident, which was actually with an adult, but yeah, but there were you didn't you know, know the, the concerns children. made by day school staff about his interactions with children as well, and right. you know that was never communicated, that was never aired out, and all that to say, you know, after you know Conrad had, had left, once I we found out, we did the background checks and stuff, you know, I kept calling him and calling him, saying, Why? "What did you know? What did you not know?" And you know, finally. You know, I could just imagine him being like, I've, I've had enough, like, stop calling me. So he wrote a letter to the board. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, you know, that's what prompted a second call to Childline because it had, you know, listed, you know, there were concerns made by staff members that were covered up and the people were fired for, you know, for basically following mandated reporting laws. I mean, mm-hmm. It, it, it was such a mind-blowing letter from, you know, from the, the pastor. Well, they would argue they weren't mandated reporters back then mm. because the law changed more recently. Right. So, but again. That was their argument. Look at the, the concept it, here is, well, we're following the law. But, you know, are you following Christ? Are you following, like, serving and loving on children mm-hmm. and families? Like, you you can check the boxes and still not be doing what's right. Mm-hmm. Right. It, although it does blow my mind that apparently this was legal. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there from, was an investigation. And from what we understand, uh, I mean, the police didn't 
arrest anyone. Do anything. I mean, nothing happened to anyone. They yeah. got a harsh talking to. That was it. Right. <laughs> Tends to be how it goes, unfortunately, in in churches yeah. everywhere. You're doing yeah. the bare minimum. I mean, a lot of people do break the law by not reporting, but they're basically finding loopholes wherever they exactly. can. So we don't technically mm-hmm. have to report this. But honestly, how can you put your head on a pillow and go to sleep exactly. every night? knowing that you have a child predator, a convicted child predator as a leader in your preschool. Like how yeah. can you do that? How can and you let him get up and preach? And then they said, they said, oh, but he never had any contact with the kids. And we were <laughs> like, what? We have photos, hundreds, hundreds of photos of him with kids. I mean, it was unreal. Uh, yeah, I mean, they put some of those in the, the USA today. I mean, yeah. there's, and that was, you know, that was like a, a pinch of salt, but we're talking a salt mine. Like there were hundreds and hundreds. And, and to looking, say that, to just outright lie and say he yeah. never had any interaction with the kids. Yeah. That's just insane. It's yeah. just the lengths that people will go to protect themselves and what they hold dear, which is, I mean, when push comes to shove, it's money because when push comes to shove, it's the institution and it's exactly. their role in the institution and it's their livelihood. And People choose that um, over kids. They're expendable mm. for some reason. You know, yeah. the, the money's not, the good reputation of the church is not, but children created right. in the image of God, like they're expendable if we're saving what really matters, the men of God and exactly. the name of the institution. Which is my beef today of still, like still no letters have been sent out to these parents telling them the truth. Yeah. I mean, and has it even been dealt with? I have asked the Pat New pastor to do that. Yeah. I haven't heard back from him, but I asked. They do not want Mm-mm. to kick that sleeping dog. And yeah. every single attorney, any attorney they that's worth exactly. anything tell them is going to tell them. Because that's just, I work for defense attorneys, so I know how it is. And, and thankfully, we don't defend, yeah. you know, churches who've been... Uh, in right. lawsuits, <laughs> with defense attorneys, like you just as little as possible needs to be made known. You yeah. accept responsibility for nothing, deny everything. Like that's just the the way it goes, you know, yeah, whether you're right or wrong. And who's doing that for the children? Nobody. Children aren't can't right. hire lawyers to protect them. Yeah. It's just so horrible and unfair. And, and children <sighs> and, and adults, right? So there's so well, many people too, coming out of this yeah. now that have had, and they're well beyond the statute of limitations, right? I mean, statute, is it statue or statute? Statute. <laughs> statute. Yes. All right. I, I need legal advice. <laughs> Kelly, you need to help us here. I'm sorry. Um, if you say but, statute and statute, it kind of sounds like the same if you say it fast, so you don't have to worry about it. I'll say it fast. <laughs> statute of limitations. You know, it's expired where, you know, people that were abused as children or as teenagers so much time has expired that they can't do anything about it and you know look at the warm reception we got and they get Mm -hmm. like all these people that are coming out with you know with these allegations well and adults who are abused right and that really is is a big thing that we've had our eyes open to because Mm -hmm. the adults that are abused and it always comes across well that was consensual is always the argument and it's not adults can be abused too but the children really get me because they're kids Who's and they protect can't the children? even have a chance right. to they like, can't even Most argue. times they can't even process or vocalize what happened until right. they're much older. Right. Exactly. No, it's, it's true. And 
um, so many people listening to the podcast right now can relate to that. I know I can. I was six when it happened to me and I had oh. so many words. I talked nonstop, but I could yeah. not articulate anything. I was terrified. It wasn't even that I couldn't say it. It was that yeah. I was too afraid to because I knew, you know, it was a really bad thing and yeah. it was the church and, and Jesus and, you know, you can't right. like, you can't talk about stuff like this and it's just this awful thing. And that's, that's what's devastating to me in all this is that we're willing to sacrifice kids and, yeah. but, but those kids grow up and then they have these deep scars and they struggle so much in life and they just with things that they never should have had to struggle with if people would have been willing to just stand up for them and protect them. Absolutely. And, you know, you ask the question, like, who's going to protect these kids? And unfortunately, it is not going to be church leaders. It's going to be people like you yeah. who just are brave enough to stand up and be like, you know, I mean, you guys lost a lot. It's it, This is traumatic, you know, to yeah. lose your church family and to lose the support of people that you've known your whole lives. And to be told yeah. that you're somehow breaking God's laws by speaking up for the innocent and and kids who are very well likely being oppressed by this person that you've decided for whatever reason, it's okay to put him in leadership, even though he has this, this past. Yeah. Um, but that's what gives me encouragement in your story is just that like you two just you did it. Like you took it on and you took the punches and you're still taking them. Like it's, you said earlier, you can't read that letter without feeling like a sense of trauma. And that's what you take on. And that's what results from this culture of silence where when you do speak up, you lose so much. Yeah. But, um, I personally want to thank you because there are definitely kids that you have helped and that you have have stopped from being abused. Like, I don't have a question in my mind about that because I don't believe that men who are repentant yeah. seek out positions of authority in churches. Exactly. I don't believe that child molesters work in schools for 12 years in any capacity when yeah. they have sexually abused a child. Um, true yeah. repentance, you get yourself away from that and away from those situations where you could potentially hurt another kid. So anyway, I think it's awesome. And there's so much, like there's so much to that story. And I know there are layers and layers of like trauma. I know we could go on forever. Right. <laughs> and it really, but I wanted to leave a little bit of time to get to the website you created because it's yeah. amazing. And well, you've mentioned <laughs> churchtrauma.org, which I actually have not seen. So I'm going to check that out. And all of these links, everything that we talk about yeah. is going to be posted in the show notes. So you can cool. just go to the show notes and click and you can find what we're talking about. But you created baptistaccountability.org. So can you tell us a little bit about that website? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so our experience with the cult, our experience at, at Oakwood, our experience, you know, even with Carlisle was, you know, these, these predators tend to just move on, you know, and, and there's no way to track them. There's no way to really communicate what they were responsible for in the past. Well, and churches are not telling other churches, even right. when they know. Yeah, that they're there. I mean, I, I remember, you know, being on the board that the bar was so low of how do we decide if this guy should be a pastor? Because we went from one to five pastors. And of those five, statistically speaking, most of them mm -hmm. had checkered pasts mm -hmm. and had issues that they should not have been in a position of authority over other people. That's absolutely true. Um, 
and, and there was no there was no method or mechanism. It wasn't like you know if I I give you my references, I'm going to cherry pick the most awesome reference. You know, my buddy Fred right. is going to tell you I'm you know I can I'm <laughs> awesome. I'm not going to tell you this is Susie, my reference, and you know I I told her she was going to go to hell unless she did ABC. Right? You, you don't share the bad stuff that you've done. You only share the good and, and the references and stuff. So there was no way to track that. There was no way, you know, to be able to check up on what has this person done. And there are a lot of databases out there and, and phenomenal ones. You know, you know, Krista had started, uh, you know, a Baptist, you know, to track Stop Baptist, Stop predators. Baptist predators. And there's the map list and there's, you know, there's Bishop Accountability and there's Anglican Watch, you know, the Preacher Boys, Houston Chronicles, you know, their abuse of faith. There's a lot of resources out there, but those are, you know, somewhat newer. Um, well, Krista's was older. Krista's she, was older and, she and it wasn't being maintained. Yeah. Right. And so the, the question came up, like, why isn't the SBC doing this? And, and I think right. we've kind of kicked that that dead horse a lot. They don't seem to want to act. They want to say the right things, but not act. Right. And so the question we were posed with is, well, why don't we do something? And, and, you know, we were what? It was dinner, dinner talk. Right. And, and the question well, was, well, I was out to dinner with a friend. There you go. Initially. Yeah. And that came up between me and my friend. And I was like, we were talking about church trauma, actually. I was asking her, if, I was thinking of putting a resource section on there and asking for her advice, <laughs> you know. And then I said something about this whole database and that the, the Baptists aren't doing this and what an issue this is. She's not a Baptist, so she didn't, you know, I was just telling her about it. I'm like, maybe I could put that on the website. And she's like, why not? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Why not? <laughs> why not? <laughs> I guess. And so I came home and I said something to Dom about it that after that, and at first you were like, eh, I think it's legally, I'm sure we can't because otherwise somebody already would have. And you were like, you know, I don't know. But then he's the tech guy, you know, he's uh, does IT for a living. And so the next day he was, he had given it more thought and he's like, you know, if we set it up like this and this, maybe it could work. And then, so once he was on board, I'm like, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> <And> <laughs> so I asked, I had taken a class with Ashley Easter, um, an advocacy class. And so I just reached out to her and said, what do you think of this? Is this really naive and ridiculous? <laughs> she's like, no, it's a great idea. And she's like, I'll set you up on a Zoom call with other advocates. And I'm like, well, that was weird <laughs> because <laughs> here I am, a nobody, like nobody knows me. And here I am with, you know, Krista Brown. I'm, I'm considering these people heroes, you know, <laughs> I was a little starstruck in this meeting. This right. was like Krista Brown and Jules Woodson and, you know, Russ Meek. And I'm probably forgetting a lot of people, just all these names of people that I considered heroes in this whole movement, you know, and Ashley introduces me and she wants to talk about this database and I'm just there like, oh my gosh, uh. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> but we just kind of figured it out and Dom and wasn't that hard. reached out to some other databases and asked how they did things. And yeah. it really wasn't. It really it took wasn't us that hard. From the time we had that meeting, that Zoom meeting, till we put two it months, up, two roughly. months. To have yeah. a database stood up and populated, right? Because the information's already all over the place. Like, right. you know, Krista has, you know, a database that hasn't been updated, but, you know, you pull those records and 
you know, validate them, make sure they're still active links. And, and again, you know, we validate the information like it has to be credible allegations like news articles and you know there has to be something to substantiate this and that's just the right. starting point and there's a crap ton of information out there you know the abuse of faith database and you know krista's you know the the database well and we still i mean we need to point out this database i I made a post today on Twitter because <laughs> I was starting to think about this. Like, I don't want people to get a false sense of security that this database yeah. has everything in it because we it are constantly finding it's two things people doing people this. we missed. Yeah. yeah. And like just from researching online. And so we need help like this. It, our vision for this isn't that we are going to do this and find every abuser ever. We can't. Like every dark our, corner of every Baptist church in right. the world. I mean, I would if I could, but it would be great. But our, optimistic our vision that. is that this is a grassroots effort. Like we need everyone, like we all pull together. And if we're all looking and putting it in, we'll get them in there. You know, yeah, right. there's okay. a long way to go. And again, you know, this shouldn't be our job. Like there should be a, you know, and, and Krista's talked about this a lot, you know, there should be an, an organization or something that, you know, has trained staff and, and, you know, full-time employees and things like that, this, you know, there should be something like the SBC really should do something about this. And this is two people that don't know what they're doing and have, have stood up a database, right? And, and there's a lot of people that have stood up databases, but there's an overarching need you know, for maybe a governing board or something like, right. and you know this, Kelly, I mean, if, if you're a lawyer and, you know, you do something bad enough, you can lose your license, right? And if yep. you're a teacher, mm -hmm. you can lose your license. And, and in IT, you know, you can lose your certification. And But there's nothing like that for priests or pastors, you know, whether it be Catholic or whether it be you know, LDS or Mennonite or Baptist or whatever, there, there really does need to be some kind of overarching, if not a, some a states board, have laws, but... but something to be able to identify, you know, this. Right. You have to have a license to be a hairdresser in most states, <laughs> but not yeah. to be a pastor. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, how do you no, track it's, it's true. good versus bad, you know? And each denomination, like I strongly believe, every single denomination should be compiling their own database mm, yeah. so that yeah. all of yep. their churches can look at the database and see if the person who just walked through their doors and wants to start working, you know, is on it. And that's, it's not a fail safe right. because there are so sense. many people who don't get caught, but it's, yeah. when you look at the way it happens in the Baptist church and not just Southern Baptist, but independent Baptist and, and right. I mean, it doesn't even have to be Baptist. And we do cover all Baptists, people, by the way. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, that's good. So <laughs> accountability.org, you can submit if you have anybody to submit. But I mean, the point is, we're passing people around. Like, that's why you exactly. guys spoke out, because that's what happened. You know, you cover it up at one church, say bye bye to the perpetrator, he gets embarrassed because he's been called out, and then moves on to the next church and people are none the wiser. And it starts all over again. It's literally why we have abuse that just goes on and on and on for decades. And mm -hmm. databases in each denomination would at least help. Like they're not going to fix every single thing, right, but it would right. be a huge help where you see this happening over and over again and tell your pastors, Hey, before you hire somebody, 
check the database. Make sure he's not in there for, you know, molesting a child. Like it's not that difficult. And if we could, I mean, now I know ours isn't with full-time employees and blah, blah, blah. But if we could do this to, you know, two people with very limited funds, the SBC or the Baptist, whatever, with all their resources, there is no excuse at all. Yeah. yeah, no, there's none. There, There isn't. The only, I mean, there's no excuse for it, but there's a reason for it. And the reason is money. That's what it always yeah. comes down yeah. to. Because afraid of if getting you put, sued. Yeah. Yes, you put too much information out there, you're going to get yourself caught in, in some trouble. And that's, it just boils down to money in the end. And it's, it's sad that it's that way. But until that happens, um, where denominations start stepping up and being very, very transparent with their preachers. Uh, we have websites yeah. like yours. It's baptistaccountability.org. I want to encourage everybody to check it out. You've got uh, people who have been convicted and who have assisted. I love this part, who have assisted in covering up for mm-hmm. these predators. And that's important as well. And then yeah. people who have been credibly accused of abuse on the website as well. And so we I'm are looking link- at possibly adding some other categories just for the- Okay, good, good. <laughs> like no, financial, I'm- financial's one we really think we will be adding soon, so. Yes. Yeah. And that, I mean, oh goodness. It's a slippery slope. Like where, where do you start and where do you stop? I mean, there's just, just so much abuse of so many different kinds. I mean, you know, we, we faced spiritual abuse. Do we include spiritual abuse? And God help us. Racism. There was a news article about a, a church that was killing kittens. And serious, wow. literally today. We don't have I a category for killing kittens. Today. Oh. Wasn't that awful? I mean, there's so the ca- much abuse. What category do you have for that? Yeah, yeah. It's craziness. A kitten checkbox, I guess, is what we need to. But yeah, people who abuse animals abuse people. Animals. I mean, right. Where do we start and where do we stop? We can only do so much. But the, the, the need is so great right now. It is. No, it really is. And you guys, I mean, you can only do so much as two people, but you've done an amazing job. And I know it's like, it's not easy. It's a lot of work. It's not like you're, you're getting paid and your time yeah. is basically just like a labor of love. And that's, it's awesome because there are people who are going to benefit from that. And I hope um, so. until we have churches stepping up and doing the right thing, we have people like you guys who are like, honestly, this is what it's going to take to stop child sexual abusers in churches. It's just people who refuse to be quiet, no matter what the cost And the cost is great, but I think the cost of silence is even greater. And Mm -hmm. so I just want to thank you, too. I really appreciate everything that you do. And I'm going to link to your Facebook pages and your websites, and uh, our listeners can get to know you guys better. I know some of our listeners already know you pretty well, So, (laughs) um, but I really appreciate you two coming on and uh, chatting about your experiences. Thank Thank you you. so much for having us, Kelly. This was great. Oh my goodness. So much to unpack with Dom and Megan Benninger. And uh, another thank you to them for being so willing to share their story. I'm still honored that this is the first podcast that they've done and uh, they should do some more because both of them, obviously great speakers and they have done so much for sexual abuse victims Uh, especially within the Baptist church. And again, those websites they referred to, uh, one is Dom's blog, churchtrauma.org, and the other is their website, baptistaccountability.org. And uh, they've just got a really great resource there for anybody who wants to do 
a part of the research necessary to make sure that your kids are safe in church. And I'm going to link to baptistaccountability.org and also to churchtrauma.org in the show notes. So you can find links to that there and a couple of other articles and information that we touched on in this interview will be linked in the show notes as well. So uh, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode a little longer than, than usual, but hey, we had two guests on, so kind of a two for one podcast today. And well, as always, you can join us on the Facebook group, Search Survivor Sanctuary, answer that multiple choice question, and I will let you into the group. You can join the conversation there. And I'll catch you back here next time on another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then. Thanks for listening to Survivor Sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast. Also, make sure you subscribe to Survivor Sanctuary wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also join the conversation in our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And for exclusive content, be sure to visit SurvivorSanctuary.com. Join me next time for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then.